We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, suit, my physical as well as my mental suit, fitness. Coffee time. And welcome back to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host, and a little more uh, caffeinated this morning than usual. Uh, that's why you hear such a rapid tempo in my voice. Uh, it is coffee time. It is time to talk. And we have David Ignell back on the line with us. Welcome back, David. Sorry, uh, try that again. Your mic was down. <laughs> Say it again. Oh, okay. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Yeah, that's I can hear you much loud and clear now. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, David Ignell is the author of a book that addresses the uh, evolving nature of the uh, uh, grand jury over time. It's a very slowly evolving nature, but it, uh, it, it has evolved nonetheless from its origins. And uh, specifically looking at that... that um, that idea of of uh, of our peers, our neighbors, being um, sort of the final say on uh, what's what in the world of facts as they relate to uh, anything of concern. I'll use that as a quote from David's book. Anything of a uh, of of public concern. I think you pulled that actually from some testimony at the Alaska uh, Constitutional Convention, the very first one, and. Um, uh, so we are launching into chapter seven of his book today. Feels kind of like a long game of golf. Every hole is important, and each one has a different twist and turn to the ultimate goal at the end, which is a functioning uh, grand jury. Uh, hopefully, by the end of this podcast, you'll feel a little more confident in teeing off when uh, when you engage your public uh, representatives about uh, the importance of this institution and uh, why they should care and why they should, uh, with their authority that we have vested in them, uh, uh, create uh, pressure on the judiciary and the other parts of the system to toe the line, so to speak. Yes, uh, uh, Jason, um, uh, just a quick uh, quick correction. Uh, we're actually starting Chapter 9 today, not Chapter 7. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I was, I was thinking... Uh, did I say seven? Well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, chapter nine, chapter nine, chapter seven will be what we uh, what lands on the uh, the airwaves today. That's that was in my mind earlier. So, sorry, a little, little bit of uh, corruption in the data here. Well, and and uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say uh, I'll, I'll give a quick overview here of the chapter before I start, but. Um, Today's uh, today's a big day. We have finally arrived. Uh, you know what you've called a uh, uh, slowly developing project or a long game of golf. Um, we are there. Uh, we have finally reached the chapter where we start talking about the Alaska Grand Jury and and what it has done. Uh, today we're going to take a look at the first twenty five years. Uh, of the grand of the Alaska grand jury in action, starting with statehood in 1959, and uh, I'll spend the, the first couple of pages of my book. Uh, you know, I tried to go back and and 
you know, find a lot of source material on, on prior grand juries. And uh, the Alaska State Library uh, had, a, had a wealth of information on the Sheffield investigation of 1985. Uh, but previous to that, um, there just wasn't a whole lot of information. So what, what listeners are going to hear today is going to be some summary um, information on, on past grand jury practices. And I, I wish I had uh, access to some of the reports that were generated by grand juries, but I, you know, I, I checked with a couple different librarians and uh, the Alaska court system and they didn't have anything. So if there are listeners out there uh, who know where some of these older grand jury investigative reports are, um, you know, I please contact Jason or, or myself. I I'd like to, uh, uh, I'd like to, you know, have access to, to that documentation. Um, but, uh, so, you know, the first couple of pages of my book, will start out with kind of an overview of what grand juries did in Alaska up until 1985. And then we're going to launch into, um, the Sheffield investigation by a Juno grand jury in, uh, in 1985. And, uh, I've got to say that, you know, up with some of the found, you know, in, in the last episode uh, for chapter eight, you know, we we uh, we heard what a lot of the delegates had to say on the Alaska Constitutional Convention floor in 1955 and 1956. And, uh, you know, in our last episode, Jason, you you pointed out um, uh, Yule Kilcher as as uh, one of the heroes of uh, of that delegation of that constitutional convention. Well, the other hero in my book uh, is the Juno Grand Jury in 1985. This was 15 people from my hometown in Juneau who dedicated themselves to the truth. And uh, in the following chapter, in chapter 10, we're going we're gonna to learn a little bit about how some of those grand jurors were attacked uh, for, for, doing their, for doing their duty. Uh, but at the end, they all felt good about what they had done. And so um, th- what, what the Juno grand jury did um, is a model for the nation. This is what, what they did is how, uh, how it, it's a textbook example of how a grand jury investigation should proceed. And, you know, if, if David Haig and I can get our grand jury investigations off the ground, if this group in uh, Anchorage can get their uh, investigation of the OCS off the ground. Uh, chapter nine of my book is a model for how those grand jurors, um, you know, the 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 goal that they should set for conducting their investigation. Uh, so without uh, further ado, um, I guess I'll get right in. Unless Jason, you have any more comments, I'll I'll start now with chapter nine. No, I'd say go ahead and roll it. Okay. Let me get a quick drink of water here. So this is a, mm-hmm. a brief pause. If you have a cup of coffee also, you should probably uh, take a big gulp because uh, you're going to need it to process this next uh, 40 minutes or so. Okay. Chapter 9. A Juno grand jury investigates Governor Sheffield and recommends his impeachment. Up until 1985, the Alaska Grand Jury appears to have regularly investigated 
and reported their findings to the public on a variety of topics. A 1987 Pennsylvania Law Review article with access to some internal state of Alaska documents asserted in a footnote that, quote, grand juries in Alaska frequently issue public reports pursuant to their state constitutional authority to investigate and make recommendations concerning public welfare and safety. This constitutional provision is unique to Alaska. Between 1961 and 1971, Alaska grand juries issued 28 reports on a wide variety of topics, including overcrowding in state prisons, sentences for criminal defendants, drug abuse by minors, and the use of electronic listening devices. Moreover, two previous reports had criticized public officials and recommended their discipline or removal. A 1987 report published by the Alaska Judicial Council identified at least another dozen grand jury investigations occurring after 1971. Their report provided only summary information regarding these Alaska grand jury investigations and reports, but concerns of misconduct by government officials appears to have been a recurring theme. One instance, in 1965, an Anchorage grand jury investigated alleged irregularities in a local election. Instance, instant number two. From 1973 to 1974, a Kenai grand jury considered allegations of improper conduct by municipal officials and allegedly inappropriate conduct of a judge. In 1974, a Fairbanks grand jury investigated alleged conflicts of interest by public officials in appropriating funds for a local flood control project. From 1981 to 1982, Juneau grand juries investigated charges of alleged misconduct by two state senators. In 1984, an Anchorage grand jury investigated potentially criminal practices related to property and inventory maintained by the aircraft section of fish and wildlife. In 1985, a Juneau grand jury investigated the administration of Governor Bill Sheffield in its handling of a state office lease in Fairbanks. In addition to investigations of potential misconduct by government officials, the Alaska Grand Jury looked into other issues concerning the public welfare and safety of its citizens, including from 1960 to the early 1970s, Fairbanks and Anchorage Grand Juries investigated the conditions of jails and related institutions virtually every year. In 1962 and 1964, Anchorage grand juries investigated traffic safety and road signs. In 1964, an Anchorage grand jury investigated city zoning practices and in 1965, investigated municipal water and service. A 1970 Anchorage grand jury investigated the Cordova fire. fire. A 1970 Anchorage grand jury investigated the slaying of two people by a police officer. A 1973 Fairbanks grand jury investigated security at the university campus following several crimes committed on campus. 
1974 Fairbanks grand jury investigated a mob incident at the Tanana Valley Fairgrounds that resulted in injury to several people. A 1976 Fairbanks grand jury investigated the Checker Cab Company following an extremely high incidence of felony indictments against its personnel. A 1977 and a 1983 Bethel grand jury investigated the effectiveness of police operations. A 1983 Barrow grand jury investigated the local jail. A 1986 Bethel grand jury investigated a large number of sexual abuse cases being brought in that community. The most extensive and well-known of all these Alaska grand jury investigations occurred 37 years ago in Juneau, filling the headlines of newspapers across the state. At the end of February 1985, the state's Department of Administration, the DOA, had signed a lease for 32,000 square feet in a downtown Fairbanks office building known as the Fifth Avenue Center. The cumulative rent to be paid by the state under the Fifth Avenue Center lease during the next 10 years was substantial, approximately $10 million. Ordinarily, DOA employees would have evaluated the state's need for this lease, determined the parameters for location in lease terms, and managed a competitive bid process between property owners in the Fairbanks downtown area. However, Abnormalities throughout the lease process caused these DOA employees to complain to the state's Department of Law, the DOL, which began to investigate the circumstances surrounding the lease. The DOL was able to determine that a major political fundraiser and friend of Governor Bill Sheffield had obtained a draft of the state's bid documents before they were made publicly available. Critical changes had been made to the lease parameters following this leak, which eliminated all competition for the lease other than the Fifth Avenue Center. On April 8, 1985, the DOL investigators met with Mr. Sheffield's chief of staff in a recorded interview at his office to find out if he knew how the political fundraiser obtained the draft DOA documents. The chief of staff denied knowing how the fundraiser obtained the bid documents, when in fact he knew they had been sent directly to the fundraiser by Mr. Sheffield's executive assistant at his specific request. Even worse, immediately after talking with the investigators, the chief of staff met, met privately with the executive assistant, telling her to go to a telephone outside the Capitol building and alert the fundraiser that investigators knew about his receipt of the bid document. These later facts were eventually discerned because of the ensuing Juno grand jury investigation. Knowingly making a false statement during an official investigation was not a crime in Alaska if it was not made under oath. Having no authority to compel witnesses to take an oath, the state investigators were at the mercy of the chief of staff's ethical choices. The DOL investigators decided to ask the Juno grand jury using their common law powers to help them figure out if Mr. Sheffield had acted inappropriately 
by funneling $10 million of state funds to a group its political fundraiser and friend was a part of. Before the grand jury investigation began, Mr. Sheffield was known throughout Alaska as a wealthy hotel owner who hadn't held elective office until becoming the state's governor in December of 1982. Mr. Sheffield's campaign had spent a record $2.5 million to win that election. Accumulating significant debt, including a $500,000 personal loan from the wealthy candidate. Before the election, Mr. Sheffield had campaigned for votes on the promise he would be more immune to special interests because of his personal contributions. He said Alaska had been good to him and wanted to repay the state's generosity by personally financing his costs. Public concern regarding potential conflicts of interest by Mr. Sheffield in his decisions as governor and his fundraising activities had already surfaced before the Fairbanks lease investigation commenced. Shortly after taking office, Mr. Sheffield had met with federal authorities in Washington, D.C. and reversed his campaign promise to delay oil exploration in the Bering Sea to enable further impact studies on marine life. He had then attended a series of fundraising events in New York, Dallas, Houston, and Denver using a private jet owned by a Dallas-based energy company that had recently acquired substantial interests in Alaska and contracted with the state. Approximately $160,000 had been raised for Mr. Sheffield at these events, attended mostly by oil industry officials. On April 24, 1985, the Juneau Grand Jury commenced their investigation into the Fifth Avenue Center lease. The jurors heard opening remarks from Dan Hickey, the chief prosecutor for the Department of Law. Mr. Hickey outlined the jurors' important investigatory duty preserved under the Alaska Constitution and the powers they possessed in that regard. He stated, quote, The grand jury, however, under our Constitution, has a whole separate function and responsibility, and that's an investigatory function, particularly in matters that involve public trust, in matters that involve government, and in complex matters where the assistance of a grand jury is required in conducting the investigation itself. There are a number of powers that the grand jury has available to it, including the power to subpoena witnesses, to require them to come here and give testimony under oath, the power to subpoena records, in many cases to subpoena records that might otherwise be confidential, unquote. Mr. Hickey then told the jurors of their unique ability to get to the bottom of troublesome matters, especially those that involve the integrity of our government. Quote, On the other hand, the grand jury, as a matter of our Constitution, also has an investigatory responsibility, and that could include, for example, as you may recall the judge instructed you when you were first seated, doing things like examining the conditions in local jails if that comes to your attention. But beyond that, in its investigatory capacity, the grand jury is the instrument of government that is uniquely positioned to get to the bottom of a particularly complex matter, particularly a matter that draws into question 
the integrity of our government process. And that's really what this case is all about, unquote. Following Mr. Hickey's opening remarks, the Juno Grand Jury went on to meet for 21 days over the next 10 weeks. Former Watergate prosecutor George Frampton was hired as special counsel to represent the Juno Grand Jury. The grand jurors heard testimony from 44 separate witnesses and received 161 exhibits, totaling a few thousand pages of documents. Individuals subpoenaed by the grand jury to testify included Mr. Sheffield, his chief of staff, his executive assistant, and his executive secretary, the commissioner of administration, the political fundraiser, and other individuals with an ownership interest in Fifth Street Center. Mr. Sheffield testified on April 25 and was summoned a second time on June 12. Besides Mr. Sheffield, several other witnesses were also recalled. The chief of staff tried to quash his subpoena, but after receiving a grant of immunity from the grand jury, testified for two days on June 25 and 26. He admitted lying to Department of Law investigators during the April 8th interview and throwing away documents in his files after the press requested access to them. He told the Juno grand jury he did so to protect Mr. Sheffield from embarrassment and exposure. After listening to the witnesses and reviewing the documents with the, which the Juno grand jury subpoenaed, they were able to discern what had gone down behind closed doors in the offices of the governor and his administrators, as summarized in the next six paragraphs of this study. And this is a quote from the report. The fundraiser was part of a syndicate that purchased the Fifth Avenue Center in mid-1983, several months after Mr. Sheffield won the election. That same year, the fundraiser had been responsible for raising $92,000 for Mr. Sheffield to help settle campaign debts by hosting an event at his home. The sole tenant of Fifth Avenue Center was scheduled to vacate shortly in March of 1984. The syndicate financed their acquisition through a local bank with a short-term loan that was due in mid-1984. In early 1984, Mr. Sheffield showed his chief of staff a folder of materials on the Fifth Avenue Center and told him it would be an ideal building in which to consolidate government offices in Fairbanks. The chief of staff began trying to persuade state agencies to lease the building. He initially pressured the Department of Natural Resources to relocate there, even though they repeatedly told him the down lo downtown location did not suit their needs. To appease the chief of staff, DNR personnel took the unusual step of trying to locate other state agencies who could take the space in a downtown building the DNR had no interest in. Mr. Sheffield and the chief of staff also applied pressure on the DOA commissioner, a political appointee, to find tenants for a downtown location. DOA employees put together a draft request for proposal, RFP, which established a zone in downtown Fairbanks, which would be an acceptable location for the future site of state agencies and set the date for the intended occupancy. 
There was evidence the governor instructed his chief of staff to review the RFP before it was publicly released to prospective bidders. Around the same time the RFP was sent to the chief of staff, the fundraiser hosted a birthday party fundraiser for Mr. Sheffield, and some of the building owners asked the fundraiser to obtain the bid documents. Mr. Sheffield directed his executive assistant to send the draft RFP to the fundraiser via expedited delivery using his personal funds. The fundraiser later flew to Juneau to meet with Mr. Sheffield and his chief of staff, giving them a copy of a map that depicted a core area in downtown that the owners of the Fifth Avenue Center felt would be the most appropriate for the state offices. The fundraiser also wanted the lease commencement date in the draft RFP to be accelerated. The fundraiser gave Mr. Sheffield and his chief of staff a typed legal description of the smaller core area that could be substituted into the RFP. The governor and his chief of staff understood that the purpose of the smaller area and the accelerated start date was to eliminate all potential competition for the lease. Mr. Sheffield would later testify to the Juno grand jury that it was, quote, highly probable, unquote, this meeting occurred, but he had no recollection of it. After this meeting, the chief of staff contacted the DOA deputy commissioner and instructed him to make the changes to the RFP requested by the fundraiser. The deputy commissioner then discussed the matter with an assistant attorney general and determined it didn't look too good to conduct, to conduct a competitive bid with only one bidder. A, quote, bid waiver, unquote, for authority to negotiate a sole source contract should be obtained. The bid waiver required the opinion of DOA that the sole source contract was, quote, in the best interest of the state, unquote. Two DOA employees reluctantly signed off on the bid waiver. During the ensuing negotiations over lease terms, the fundraiser and the leasing broker for the Fifth Street Center called the chief of staff to complain on several occasions. The DOA employees felt the state was being compromised and undercut by these tactics. Believing certain confidential information was being leaked to the ownership group, which gave them a negotiating advantage. Eventually, the DOA employees recommended to their supervisors that the lease not be signed. But the DOA's deputy commissioner and commissioner approved it anyway. The lease was signed at the end of February 1985. During their investigation, the Juno Grand Jury heard evidence that the troubling circumstances involving the Fifth Avenue Center were not unique but one that followed a pattern in other state leases. However, the grand jury did not have an opportunity to investigate the circumstances surrounding these other, le other leases. Upon concluding their investigation, the Juno grand jury was faced with a difficult decision on how to proceed. Criminal indictments and prosecutions against the governor and his staff for their actions would be difficult because of Alaska's inadequate laws against such behavior. The grand jurors established the following set of seven goals and decided to choose the course of action which best served those goals. Number one, to be positive, constructive, and impartial in our outlook and actions. Two, 
to best serve the public interest as viewed in the widest sense. Three, to hold elected and appointed public officials accountable for their actions. Four, to encourage changes in public policy, regulations, and laws so as to better protect the public interest in the future. Five, to enhance public awareness of the facts of wrongdoing or abuse of office by public officials to the greatest extent possible. Six, to make sure insofar as possible that justice is served. And seven, to provide a deterrent against wrongdoing and abuse of office by public officials in the future. The Juno Grand Jury ultimately decided that the best course of action was to prepare a public report that set forth the relevant evidence in their recommendations. They developed an outline which expressed certain concerns and incorporated a list of specific recommendations to the public. They asked their attorneys to prepare a draft report that they reviewed and directed certain changes. The final version was an exceptional and detailed 69-page report, referred to as the Sheffield Report, describing their findings of fact surrounding the, fund, the fundraiser's interest in the Fifth Avenue Center, the circumstances behind the lease, and the influence of the governor and his staff in the process. After reviewing the final version, they voted unanimously to approve it. The Sheffield report began by stating the evidence, quote, discloses serious abuse of office by Governor William Sheffield and his chief of staff, unquote, and, quote, the Sheffield administration has not best served the interests of the public and is unfit to fulfill the inherent duties of public office, unquote. The grand jury recommended the legislature be called into special session to initiate impeachment proceedings against the governor. The Juno grand jury didn't limit their criticism to just Mr. Sheffield. Their report stressed the importance that all state employees have an obligation to serve the public loyally, honestly, and faithfully in the performance of their official duties. The Sheffield Report states, quote, a public servant is under a duty to exercise his official discretion reasonably and in a manner faithful to the public he serves. The, public, the law requires a public servant, when acting in the performance of his duties, to advance and protect the interests of the government and the public, placing them above the interests of any private person. The duty of loyal and faithful service is one of the duties inherent in the nature of every public servant's office. Bes unquote. Besides impeachment and the admonition to all public servants, the Sheffield Report made several other recommendations to the public, citing its express authority to do so under Article 1, Section 8 of the Alaska Constitution. The Juno Grand Jury felt these recommendations were necessary to help prevent a recurrence of the conduct of government officials that the Grand Jury found so troubling. Number one, cancellation of the Fairbanks office building lease and a restarting 
of the procurement process. Number two, passage of legislation or a regulatory code of ethics to govern the conduct of executive branch officials with appropriate disciplinary sanctions. Number three, enactment of new procurement regulations that provide additional independence from higher level intervention on behalf of favored political interests. Number four, a reminder to all in state to all state employees that each of them have an obligation to faithfully serve the public interest first. Number five, a legislative review of the adequacy of existing statutes pertaining to lobbying activities. Number six, amending the legal definition of confidential information to specifically include draft and unreleased competitive bid proposals and their specifications. And number seven, Enactment of regulations detailing specific standards and procedures for approving bid waivers, conducting market surveys in bid waiver situations, and providing public input on major projects. The Juno Grand Jury didn't want to just leave their recommendations in the hands of the legislators, though. The grand jurors felt it was important that all Alaskans be fully informed of their findings to dispel rumors floating around and gain public support for their recommendations. They directed their attorneys to seek the approval of the Juneau Superior Court judge for the publication of the Sheffield Report. Mr. Hickey and Mr. Frampton prepared and filed a legal brief in support of publishing the Sheffield Report, citing several cases in support of the grand jury's request. One of those cases was Judge Vanderbilt's opinion in Camden from which they cited two paragraphs quoted earlier in chapter seven of this study. The attorneys also pointed out the historic reporting power of the grand jury under section eight of the Alaska Constitution. At the court hearing to consider the publication of the Sheffield Report, and in a show of their solidarity, all 15 grand jurors appeared before Superior Court Judge Roger Pegues even though they knew only their three officers needed to be present. The grand jury foreperson began the hearing by directly addressing the judge. She informed Judge Pegues the grand jurors desired to remain in session and not be discharged until the court had determined the entire Sheffield report was appropriate for public release as submitted. She concluded her presentation to the judge with the following statement. Quote, we of the grand jury strongly feel that our deliberations have been as thorough as possible and that the attached report reflects a true and complete account of the testimony and evidence before it. Because of the publicity surrounding this case, in particular recent stories speculating on our deliberations, we feel that it is in the best interest of the public that a full and accurate report of our findings and conclusions be available immediately for widespread review and discussion, unquote. After hearing from the foreperson and the grand jury's attorneys, Judge Pegues determined the report was within the authority and jurisdiction of the Juno grand jury. His reasoning followed centuries of common law practice in America. He acknowledged he had no authority to seal or edit the report if he disagreed with some of its findings 
conclusions, or recommendations. He said, quote, But when the grand jury has completed its work, then it is the normal course to make a report. Reports have been made for years. If the report falls within the grand jury's jurisdiction and as a result of their own investigation, and particularly if it concerns a public matter as this one does, then it should be released. And the superior court, this court, should possess no authority to steal it or edit it because I might disagree with some of the conclusions or because I believe any of its recommendations are not justified. That is not the role of the court. The court's sole function is to is its power to prevent the grand jury from making an illegal report. That is a report beyond its jurisdiction, a report that's not the result of its investigation. The report here, which I read through last night, clearly is neither. It is on the subject of the investigation, and it is a result of the investigation. So there is no reason I know of why it should not be released, unquote. In conclusion, the collective actions and decisions of the 15 Juno residents who served on the 1985 Juno Grand Jury stands not only as a roadmap for other grand juries in Alaska, but for the entire nation. Their investigation into the truth of the matter was exceptionally thorough. The goals they collectively chose were admirable. Their recommendations put the public's interests first. The Sheffield report substantially raised public awareness of highly inappropriate conduct within the governor's administration. Lord Summers would have been proud of the Juno grand jury. Their thorough nonpartisan investigation and report enabled the public to discern the truth and make Alaska a better place for its citizens. Their findings suggested the state of Alaska Treasury was available to those who sought to increase the, po the power of the political machine. Similar to the situation in New York City a, cent a century earlier during the days of Boss Tweed. Imagine how much worse off Alaska's coffers might have been after 1985 if our founders hadn't so strongly felt the Alaska grand jury should always have the power to investigate and make recommendations to the public. Imagine the political machine that might have firmly entrenched itself in Alaska back in 1985. But as the following chapters will show, the Alaska government has tried to put the Alaska grand jury under its thumb since then. What has been going on behind closed doors at state offices these past 35 years? Are Alaskans confident their treasury has not been raided. And that's the end of chapter nine. Well, you know, I've been told by a number of people who I respect that Alaska is actually one of the most corrupt states in the nation. And, you know, growing up here, I moved into, uh, onto the Kenai Peninsula in 1990. And, um, you know, I, I haven't seen the level of corruption that this report entails, but there are enough people with enough stories about sort of these crony deals and, and backroom bargains and, and things going on in the state that one has to wonder just how 
broad and pervasive this type of activity actually is. And, um, you know, it, it, it just, uh, you, let, you read a long list of grand juries doing a lot of important work. But as you and I know, about 30 years ago, that all seems to have come to a screeching halt. It's curious. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, we talked about this in a prior episode where maybe towards the beginning where, you know, I, I tried to, you know, I contacted, uh, you know, various people trying to get records of, of uh, grand juries uh, after 1985. Now, you know, there's the, we're, we're going to, in a couple chapters, we're going to get into this case up in Anchorage in 1990 involving Bartlett High School. And, and that's where the, you know, that's where the Alaska Supreme Court, you know, tried to put a, the final nail in the coffin of, of the Alaska grand jury. But, you know, you're you, you, in, in researching this book, uh, in and in looking at, you know, the, the, the records on the Sheffield uh, grand jury report investigation, fill up an entire library shelf, uh, you know, volumes of documents of these exhibits. And, and it's just, it's so impressive to see the work that this grand jury did in Juneau, you know, 37 years ago. And it was there. It was, it, you know, we, we should have a repository in Alaska where people have public access to all grand jury reports. It's important. I mean, if, if, you know, just because a grand jury goes in and investigates and does a report and straighten things out, you know, it's not, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that the the corruption is not going to reappear. And the work of those prior grand juries can be important. It's, It's an important resource tool. And it's always, it's also there to, you know, it's a precautionary uh, warning to officials who would dare uh, misuse the public trust. If, if they know that the grand jury has the ability to come in and investigate, um, I think you'd find that, that Alaska, you know, maybe wouldn't be uh, perceived as such a corrupt place. And, and this is, you can see what exactly what happened in the, in the Sheffield case. I mean, there was some major stuff going down. I mean, a $10 million lease back in 1985, uh, that's a lot of money. You know, today's I, I went and I think at one point in my research, I figured out what that was in today's money. And, you know, I don't know, it was like thirty five million or something like that. You know, it, it's a big chunk of change. And there was evidence in the case that this was going on in other leases. And it was it, 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 it seemed to me like the state of Alaska Treasury was for sale. And today you got to wonder you know, okay, you know, we got all these billions of dollars, <laughs> you know, what's going on? And well, it's disturbing. I, I'd like to, to comment on that. In a, in a previous episode of the podcast uh, with a different guest, we were talking about uh, the, the strange coincidence that uh, a, a certain gentleman by the name of Rubenstein, Rubenstein, depending on, I guess, how you pronounce it, where you're from, uh, who manages one of the pri- uh, largest private investment uh, portfolios in, in the world, as I've been told, um, also has a good chunk of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend under his control. And in this last, uh, this last uh, few years here, last year I think it was, Governor Dunleavy um, appointed this particular gentleman's daughter 
to the board of trustees for the uh, permanent fund dividend. Now, if that doesn't sound like a clear conflict of interest, I, I don't know what does. It almost sounds like, you know, the the allegations and scandals, you know, swirling around Hunter Biden's head and uh, and his father's uh, placement and, you know, how how uh, there seems to be some kind of mutually beneficial um, uh, relationship here. And, you know, to dive a little deeper into that, you know, the this Rubenstein was uh, initially uh, married to a woman who was the owner of the Alaska Daily News. And uh, she was a, a big uh, supporter of Barack Obama and hosted him for dinner in her home that made state headlines. Most recently, uh, Rubenstein... Uh, loaned his uh, Nantucket estate out to Joe Biden. You know, you have all of these, and, and Rubenstein's not a politician. He's an investment guy. And so we're talking about, you know, um, the state's PFD, and I know you and I have talked about this off the air, uh, is basically a sovereign wealth fund, more or less. And it's a, there's a lot of money sitting out there. And so uh, is Alaska's treasury for sale? Well, the Sheffield case definitely begs that question, points to it and says, well, well, yes, yes, it is for sale. If you've got the right, the right person placed in the right position uh, to be able to peddle uh, influence with and, and uh, get them to make the policymakers, you know, jump over hurdles. I think that was a brilliance, evil genius, if it were on the governor's part and his staff's part to get one department to go out and basically become real estate agent uh, for their project to other departments, sort of trying to remove themselves from the central position of, of uh, you know, pitching the sale or the, the lease. Um, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I think more Alaskans need to understand and recognize. You know, for the past, I don't know, what it is now, six, eight years, they've been telling us that the state's uh, expenditures have outpaced its revenues and have used that justification as a reason not to pay out a statutory permanent fund dividend to the, to the people. And uh, yet they're passing, this last year they passed the largest state budget or in, in history. And uh, meanwhile, you have all these people who have made all these promises about what they're going to do to secure the treasury and the permanent fund specifically, basically looking like they're walking, walking all their uh, promises backwards and saying, oh, well, we'll do better next time. And I know there's a lot of people hot about that. And imagine if we actually had a functioning grand jury where the grand jury could dig into these topics deeper and say, now, wait a second, let's, let's look at these strange relationships between, you know, the governor and the board of trustees and who's actually got their hands on the money and managing the funds. And um, so it, definitely an interesting, interesting chapter. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't speak to, you know, what, what's going on with the Alaska Permanent Fund right now and its board. I mean, it's not something I've taken a look at. Um, but I can tell you that this conflict of interest issue that you've raised is, is very troubling to me uh, from what I've seen in, in both the, um, you know, my, my requested grand jury investigation in Juneau into the, the DOL, the, you know, the Department of Law, the Alaska court system, 
the Office of Children's Services, the Alaska Judicial Council, uh, you know, the, the, the attorney general or, you know, the, the conflict of interest that the attorney general uh, is enabling is, is, is appalling. In, in my opinion. And uh, I'm seeing the same thing, you know, I'm hearing of the same thing in David Hegg's case. And so this is, this is something we've got to work through. And we're going to work through it by, you know, bringing all this, you know, bringing the truth uh, to light. Uh, something that's important, you know, there, there, there's some, there's so many important things in this last chapter that are, that are relevant to what we're doing. But, um, you know, the words of back in 1985, the grand jurors were pitched by uh, Dan Hickey. You know, he was the chief prosecutor for the Department of Law. I mean, he was, uh, you know, I think he was directly under the attorney general. He was the dude. And when you go back and look at the words that I just read that he stated to the grand jury, today, the Department of Law and the attorney general have no business saying that these requested grand jury investigations aren't appropriate. I mean, you, you can go back to the words of, of uh, you know, Dan Hickey, where he says, particularly in matters that involve public trust, in matters that involve government, and in complex matters where the assistance of a grand jury is required in conducting the investigation itself. And, you know, later on, he talks about, you know, the, the unique ability of, of grand juries to get to the bottom some of troublesome matters, especially those that involve the integrity of our government. These words are coming from the, you know, from the second highest guy in, in the attorney general's office. And, and they are holding to those words today. They can't come in and, and tell us that, oh, you got to have evidence of, uh, you know, terrible wrongdoing before we're going to allow this grand jury to proceed. No, it's when it's when the public has concerns that the grand jury is 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 validated. And but today we, we you know, it, these these uh, these attorneys are talking out of both sides of their mouth now. You know, they're trying to tell us that, oh, you can't you can't uh, investigate this. This is improper. You know, it, it's it's. Um, it's hogwash, total hogwash. But but we have the advantage of using these words that Dan Hickey, you know, laid out to the grand jury 37 years ago. So uh, whoever, whatever listeners are, you know, whatever grand jury's investigations that you're trying to get off the ground, you know, support your petition to the court with these words of Dan Hickey. In, in the law business, we call that an admission by a party opponent. And, and it's, and it's, extremely valid in, in what we're trying to do in, in Alaska right now. Well, uh, I thank you for your time, uh, David. Uh, this is, uh, we're, we're wrapping up on chapter nine here. I look forward to uh, recording chapter 10 tomorrow. And, um, you know, it's, it, the more that I learn, the less I like what I learn. And, um, you know, not dealing with the grand jury specifically, but more with the recall process in Alaska, um, I saw how the framers' intents in the, in the Constitution were grossly skewed and perverted by uh, the, the uh, or highly manipulated by the legislature 
and the courts uh, in that process. And that'll have to be a, a different podcast. But basically, when the Constitution outlines a right, and then the bureaucracy goes crazy writing uh, basically whatever regulations they feel will undermine that and nobody pushes back, then apathy is acceptance, you know, and we cannot afford any longer to remain complacent, asleep, and apathetic to the, to the process. We must become engaged, uh, you know, and the word activist um, becomes, uh, has been, I guess, demonized in our culture, uh, to, you know, be associated with people who, I don't know, chain themselves to trees and doors and, <laughs> you know, scream and yell and picket and riot and burn things down. But, um, we can be activists in a civil way. And that is by writing letters, sending emails, placing phone calls, just talking to our neighbors and our friends and our families. And when somebody says we don't talk religion or politics, then not just blindly accepting that, but then asking the next question, why not? What well, is and, and what is the reason not to do that? And then we need to we need to get our heads around what the actual reason for that reluctance to discuss things that are important, um, what, what that reason is, and then resolve that so we can move forward. You can't build something if you, you, hit, some, uh, you, hit, you hit an impasse that you didn't expect and, and you don't like it. You don't just sit there for the rest of your life. You, you work your way around it, over it, or through it. And together as neighbors, we, can, we could and should do that. Yeah, Jason, very, very well said. And I, I would just, you know, you, you, you talked about apathy and I, I think listeners and, and more people in Alaska uh, may not have as much apathy if they realize that, you know, this spending party that's been going on in the legislature now for the last 30 years uh, is, is uh, you know, that was that was fine while it lasted, but but now you've got the government, which is coming after the people's money to fund that, to continue funding that spending party. And that's through the PFD. You know, in, in 2000, and I'm, I'm starting to take a look at this. I've been looking at that, you know, 2017 Alaska Supreme Court case where, you know, they said it was, uh, it was all right for Governor Walker to uh, cut the PFD in half. That right there cost every Alaskan $1,000. And, uh, you know, when, when Walker uh, uh, cut the permanent fund dividend that was supposed to go to each Alaskan from 2000 down to 1000 And, yeah, I mean, you know, this last year, because oil prices were real high, everyone got the biggest, you know, the biggest check ever. Um, but there was a few years when they didn't get their fair share. And so, you know, the, the legislature uh, and, and government – you know, they've got their eyes now on on the the permanent fund dividend. You know, they're like, oh, how do we get, you know, how are we going to get some of that money for ourselves? So, uh, you know, this is, you know, this has cost each Alaskan probably several thousand dollars since 2016. And, uh, you know, it's time for people. And I, I was reading uh, this morning that I think there was a poll and something like 80 percent of Alaskans, maybe more, 85 percent. Uh, like the permanent fund dividend check that they get. They support it. So, 
Uh, believe me, if we can get the 85% of Alaskans uh, who want their full permanent fund check, we get them behind this train, uh, this grand jury investigation, and, you know, we're going to get some places. Well, with that, I think uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up. If you uh, are interested in supporting this uh, platform, the Amokan Coffee Social Club, Conservative Hour and Power, and Enlightenment Salon, you can uh, go to our Podbean uh, page, which this uh, episode and all other episodes are linked to, and there is a button for Patreon. We encourage you to check that out. And uh, if you'd like to become a, a regular sponsor of the show, we appreciate anything that you can donate. Otherwise, if you have something important that you would like the public to know about that concerns, well, anything of public concern, the best way to get that uh, heard and raise awareness about it is to use uh, the media and new media especially as we've seen that the legacy media established media uh, they are reluctant to report anything that doesn't fit within their concern and uh, your concern and theirs are not necessarily aligned uh, because uh, they have an agenda and uh, that agenda doesn't always include a positive outcome for you or me So you've been listening uh, to the Hour of Power. We hope that you feel empowered, and we look forward to you tuning in again tomorrow for special episode number 10.